Okay, Matthew chapter 2, the wise men. Now, when we, we, when we come to this section, okay, when we come to uh, Matthew chapter 2 and this account of the wise men, I think if we are going to get anywhere at all, really, in our understanding of this portion of Scripture, I think the first thing that has to happen is that you and I have to be aware of some subconscious presuppositions that we might have as we enter into Matthew chapter 2. I think if we're going to understand this, we've got to be aware that we carry some baggage with us uh, this morning. What do I mean by that? Will you just think for a second about how our uh, society and our culture in Britain in the 21st century, how it deals with the wise men, how it presents the story of the Magi. Now, can I just dig into that for a second? So if I ask you to think about the wise men, what comes into your mind this morning when we talk about the wise men? Come on, even for the boys and girls, I see you wise men. What do we think about? See, I I reckon for some of us, (laughs) immediately we can think about Christmas cards, can't we? You know that? Christmas cards, you've got your mantelpiece at home or that weird bit of string that everyone seems to hang up Christmas cards on in their homes. What's in the front of it? It's a picture of three blokes, three cartoon dudes on the front of it. And they're traveling by camel and there's a star above them. The wise men! Some of us can think like that. Others of us, when we think about the wise men, we think about school nativity plays. Don't we? The wise men in these things where you've got the kiddies and they are kitted out in their dressing gown and they've got a towel on their head and they are ludicrously presenting an empty box to a doll. That's the sort of thing that our society thinks about when we think about the wise men. Now, do you see the essential problem with this? What we've done in this country is kind of recategorize this account in Matthew's gospel. Do you see what I mean? We've almost mythicized it. We've taken what is a historical narrative, a true story, and we have presented it to the world and presented it as though it was a myth, as though it was a fable, as though it was make-believe. Well, as we begin this morning, I just simply want to make two very, very quick introductory comments. Really simple ones. First is this. What you're reading and studying this morning, it is a historical narrative. God presents it to you in his word like that this morning. So you and I can forget the cartoon dudes for a moment, can't we? These cartoon blokes. And maybe instead, we can take a moment to consider this happened. Now think about that. Imagine the furore in a small first century town as this group of exotic looking foreign men come into the town and they start looking for a king. That happened. That occurred. But then the second introductory statement is quite simply to say to you, this is an essential account, an important account. See, consider with me, what these, me- these wise men were brought to Jesus by God to do. What do they do? They come into the house. They see the child in his mother's arms. And these w- men fall to the ground 
in praise of Jesus. Don't you see what God is doing? God is giving you this portion of scripture to instruct you about Christian worship. This is a portion of scripture, not just about the necessity of worship, but it's a portion of scripture about the very nature of worship that is due to this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. This is not just true. This is important for your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, because of these things, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a number of headings uh, that focus us on this idea, this theme of worship in your life, the worship of Jesus Christ. So if you do have a copy of Scripture in front of you, you're going to need it. You're going to need the Bible. So if you have that in front of you, we'll consider, first of all, the scope of worship that we see here, the scope of worship. <laughs> when it comes to the wise men, I think that it is all too easy for us as a church to laugh at how other traditions within Christianity have handled the wise men. You know, you with me on that? You see at least what I mean? Just think about it. Some insist upon there being three wise men, right? I don't even know. What is that based on? I think it's just based on three gifts. Is that it? So we could scoff at that. Others go a little step further and they even give names to the wise men, right? So, you know, Balthazar, Gaspar, and, and so forth. So you can see the temptation. It'd be all too easy for us to, to be like scoffing at that and like, you know, be condescending and cheeky about these things. We ought not to do that. This morning instead, well, there must be humility here. And we must humbly consider what God does actually tell us in his word, in his text. Now, because of that, under this heading, I just want to draw your eye to four really quick details about these guys. Okay, four things to notice. So for the first one, look at verse 1, and you consider their occupation for a second here. So what we told, so we're told after the birth of Jesus, they come to Jerusalem first, not Bethlehem, Jerusalem, after Jesus' birth, and they were what? They are, so God tells us they were wise men. It's from the Greek word, which is mad, magos, magos. So we've got to be ever so careful. That's the word from where we get the English word magician, isn't it? Magi, magician. And you can see what happens. We've got to resist the temptation of thinking about these people as kind of, these men as like sorcerers or wizards or some guys with special powers. It's not like that. The idea here is much more the idea of astrologers. You see it? So who are these men? So these men that come into Jerusalem are men who were devoted to that very common pursuit in the ancient world. These were men who studied the stars. Okay, that's their occupation, if you'll allow that. That's the first detail. Second detail is then to think about the navigation. Because how do they get about? Is it like us in London with Waze? Or is it with Google Maps or something like that? No, we know. What is it? We, they, they, they're led to Jerusalem. Now, link it on again, even though you know the detail. They're led to Jerusalem by a star. And no, we don't know for sure what that looks like, do we? It's 
much as we might wish we did. You know, we don't know. Was it Halley's Comet? Was it a planetary alignment? No, we don't know. But what we ought to affirm this morning, now listen, what we ought to affirm in fulfillment of Numbers chapter 24, do we know it? Balaam's final oracle of a star coming one day, a star of Jacob. What we ought to affirm is in fulfillment of that, this was a divinely appointed moment. Do you hear a divinely appointed light? This star was of God, his powerful hand at work, moving the very stars. So their occupation, their navigation. Third detail is just to note their intention or their purpose. Because how well do you know Matthew's gospel? Do you know the themes of Matthew's gospel, friend? If you do, you'll know that even by this stage, where are we? We're we're only in, what is it, the beginning of chapter 2. Even by this stage, Matthew's laid out before you the theme of Jesus' kingship, hasn't he? Can you, can you think about that for a moment? Even if you've got your Bible there, do you know it's chapter one? Yes, Matthew gives you Jesus' genealogy, doesn't he? But what he does is he traces Jesus' royal lineage. And then he goes from that, and Matthew emphasizes the place of birth was Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Matthew's saying, this is this, this, the royal city of David. You see the theme already emerging in Matthew of, of the kingship of Jesus. Well, if you realize that and recognize that, it actually doesn't come as a surprise to you, does it? To hear what these wise men had arrived in Jerusalem to do. Because look at the end of verse 2. They come in and they say, why, why are you here? What's your intention, your purpose here? And they say, we're here to pay homage to the king of the Jews, the king. We are here to worship the king. So is everyone with me? Have we got the three details? I'll give you them again. Occupation, navigation, their intention. But actually, I think this morning you and I to hover over the fourth detail, the, the, the origin. Can I ask you to know again where these guys are from? Have a look and scan it. Look at, look what he says in the end of verse one. So these are wise men. Where are they from? They're from, he simply says they're from the east. And again, we're kind of scratching our heads, right? Because we don't, we don't know what that means. Like we don't know if, if that is Babylon or further into Mesopotamia. We, we don't know if it's even further east than that. But what can we stand, what can we affirm clearly? These men were foreigners. These men were Gentiles. Now linger on that for a second. These men were people who had very likely traveled for weeks and weeks and weeks from a far off land to come to Jesus. And maybe as I say that to you, you realize why we ought to hover on that detail for a moment. Because does it not raise the question in your mind, why? No? Like, why does God bring people from so far away to see Jesus at this point? Right? Why don't you pick up your Bible and Matthew chapter 2? Why does it not say, and God led people from Capernaum to Jesus? Why doesn't it say that? Why doesn't it say God brought wise men from another part quite nearby, brought them? Why does it, why is it so from, so from so far away? Do you see the answer? These magi were brought from the east to show us that this king's reign would have worldwide 
implications. These men were brought from so far away to underline for us that this child born to Mary was not just the king for Jerusalem, not just the king for Israel. This child born was the king of kings, the king of all creation, the king for all of the world. Maybe it is the case that you're visiting um, London City Presbyterian Church this morning, physically, virtually, maybe, you know, plugging into us because it's that Christmas time of year again. If so you you know how people deal with the nativity story. You know that very often we can look at these details and it seems so remote to many, right? Like this, this took place thousands of years ago. And then a, you know, a far off place, the Middle East, is so remote, it's so distant. But do you not see what we learn here? Do you not see what we learn from the, the wise men's arrival? If Christ's reign is universal, it affects you. If Christ truly is the King of Kings, His reign, a worldwide reign, this affects every single one of us in this room, every single person listening on. What we learn from the Magi is the right response of all people from all over the globe at all points in human history, the right response to Jesus Christ. And what is that right response? All of us need to come to Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to come to Jesus Christ. We need to bow and we need to worship him as the king. So we see the scope of worship. Second of all here though, we see the absence of worship. The absence of worship. Um, so it's, it's often said uh, that when men get lost that we can be the most stubborn uh, of all God's creations. Isn't that right? We know the story. Of course, it's not true. But, you know, it's said that if men are driving about and we get lost, that we're not going to resort to Satnav, and we certainly are not going to resort to asking for directions. We're going to sort this out ourselves, okay? So it's often said that men are very stubborn when we get lost. Thankfully, the same cannot be said of the Magi. Because you, you understand, if you're following the story, that we're not in Bethlehem. The star has led the wise men to Jerusalem. And at this point, not knowing where to go, what do the wise men do? They are humble enough to ask for directions. Now, as they do this, what God does for us, indeed what he does for you, is God shows you three alternate responses to Jesus Christ. Does everyone understand he shows us three groups of people who refuse to worship Jesus and refuse to honor him. And I just want to point them to you really briefly. So if you've got scripture open, just look at verse 3 for a start. Look at verse 3. Consider King Herod. See if you can find what's said about Herod. So Herod hears of Jesus' birth. And then what, what's the term? It says that he was troubled. Now, you're with me if I say that in English, that's a little bit vague, is it? The idea of somebody being troubled, that can mean all manner of different things. Here, though, the idea is quite clear. Here, the idea is that Herod seems threatened by this news. And I think that's something that every one of us can understand. 
Like you understand, of course, that Herod was not a legitimate king in Israel. We all know that. He was only half Jewish, Herod. Herod had been imposed upon the people by Rome. And you can see him in his palace hearing what? That there's a king of the Jews? A rightful king. A legitimate king. And you can see him and he begins to panic and he's, and he's, he's concerned. He's troubled. Friends, just as so many people are today. Resisting. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Why? Because of the apparent threat that Jesus poses to their autonomy. People resisting, bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. Why? Because they, they fear that they will be dethroned in their own life. Is that you this morning? But then read on for the second group in verse 3. So you've got Herod refuses to worship. But what's the next bit? Look at the populace. Herod was troubled. This is a bit more surprising. Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I know, you know, we're not told the detail there, are we? But can we not perhaps very carefully speculate about what's happening there? Because isn't it interesting? I mean, what do you know about the background? Like, you, you know that there's been so many skirmishes between the Jews and the Romans. So many tensions between these groups of people. So can you imagine it in Jerusalem? They're hearing one is born king of the Jews. Maybe some are excited, but others, What? What is this going to mean for us with the Romans? A king? Is this going to mean uprising? Is this going to be arrest? And you can see the people, they are concerned. Indeed, they are frightened. Just as so many people are today, resisting coming to Jesus Christ. Why? Because they fear that that new allegiance to Jesus Christ will turn everything into chaos. If I come to Jesus Christ, will it not turn my whole world upside down? Is that you? Then is the third group that I'd love you to notice. The religious elite. Because uh, you're with me, because I think we've said this before. I'll say it again. But isn't it the case that sometimes when, when we're reading God's word, sometimes God so shows us the darkness in the human heart and our blindness that we're reading scripture in shock. Is that the case? Has that not happened to you? You're reading the Bible and God shows us, reminds us how stubborn we are and how blind we are, the totality of our depravity. He shows us that, that we're taken aback by the sinfulness of the human heart. Well, is that not what happens here for you? Like, I'm going to ask you to try and imagine the circumstance at this point. Try and imagine the situation. Like Herod's palace in the first century, Okay. And Herod's trying to work out, where's this child to be born? Now, what Herod can't answer the question. He doesn't know. So what does Herod do? Make sure the boys and girls, are you listening? What does Herod do? Herod summons all the chief priests and the scribes. It's it's an early kind of presbytery meeting, is it? Or, you know, all these, all of these religious leaders together. Now, Stick with me. What are they able to do at this point? They are able to answer Herod's question. They can say, these chief priests and scribes, the king is to be born 
in Bethlehem. They know. They have seen from the Old Testament. There's a fulfillment of prophecy. It is Bethlehem of Judah. And does that not bring you to one of the most shocking details in Scripture? Because I'm asking you, what do they do? Or can I rephrase the question? What do the religious establishment not do? They don't go to Bethlehem. They don't go and worship Jesus Christ. Friends, is that not shocking to you? I mean, think about who they are. They're the ones who teach Scripture. They're the ones who know Scripture off by heart. They're waiting, supposedly, for the King, for the Messiah. They're hearing he's born. They stand a few miles away from that place. And yet, so disinterested, so blind, so stubborn, that they do not travel to worship Jesus Christ. Do you not see the lesson? People can have all the knowledge of the Bible in the world. People can know Scripture off by heart. People can have all the religious privileges imaginable. But unless God does what he did with the wise men, and unless God leads people to Jesus Christ, unless God works in their hearts, people will never, ever, ever worship Jesus Christ as they ought. And surely... That ought to serve as a warning to some of the people in this room and some of the people watching online. I am thinking of the the covenant children, the younger people. I'm thinking surely of the adherents in this church, those who have never done what Fionn did and stood up and professed publicly faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does this not serve as a warning to you? For who are you but the religious establishment? Who are you if you are not people who know Scripture? Some of you have been brought up by Christian parents, brought up hearing the good news of the gospel. Some of you have attended this place week in, week out. You hear the Bible read, hear the gospel proclaimed. You know the Bible. You have religious privilege. So you see the warning. Friends, you see what you must do. Even now you must plead with God that he would have grace You must plead with God that he would work in your life. You must plead that God might do with you what he did with the wise men and lead you to Jesus Christ, even at this hour, that you might praise Jesus and worship him in spirit and in truth. So we see the scope of worship and the absence of worship. The third thing we see here is the actual focus of the worship as well. The focus of the worship. Now, one uh, rule that pastors and ministers like to abide by when reading Scripture, one hermeneutical principle that we like to observe, is paying attention to what in Scripture seems out of place. Do you follow it? It's a rule that you should observe as well, perhaps. When you're reading a portion of Scripture, you're reading God's Word, and you notice something that seems perhaps peculiar. I can't even say the word. Peculiarly, nearly, got it, almost, strangely uh, emphasized. You notice something like that, something that seems out of place, and it is best if you pause and prayerfully ask the question, why is it like that? Why is it there? Why is it like that? Now, I think there's something akin to that in this portion of, script, portion of Scripture. Because I want you to see if you agree with your minister on this, that this story is told to you 
scarce of detail. I doubt anyone's going to argue with me on this one. Would you? Like the bare bones are, are laid before you, but nothing else. I mean, come on, we're asking how many magi were there? We're asking what sort of star is this? And, and Matthias told us this story really in a, a, a just the bare bones. He's told it to you with great economy of words, hasn't he? Hasn't he? So because of that, I think there is something that just stands out in the text. Because think about the moment we are in at this point. So the Magi, what's happened? They've just heard it's Bethlehem. <laughs> and the Magi, they travel to Bethlehem. Did you notice, just as an aside, did you notice their joy? <laughs> Matthew does not even have the words to describe their joy. What is it? They rejoice with, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy because they see the star. Just crying with joy. They know that the king, the Christ is here and they come into the house. It's a little bit beyond. You see, time has passed. They're not in a stable. Or a, they're, in a, they're in a house. And they see Mary. And they see the child Jesus. And they fall to the floor in worship. And then all of a sudden, from nowhere, Matthew starts going into depth. I mean, everything up until now has been bare bones. And Matthew decides to go into great detail about the type of gifts <laughs> that the wise men offer. Isn't it strange? Like we're saying to Matthew, at least tell us where the Magi are from. And he said, no, but I'm going to tell you all about the gifts. I'm going to point, I'm going to give you great detail. So why? Right again, aren't we asking, why have you gone into such detail at this point? Well, listen to me on this. From the very earliest of times. So from the very early church fathers all the way through, so many people have seen a spiritual symbolism in these gifts that were offered. Do you see the idea? Are you following me on this? So it's the idea that unbeknownst to the Magi, perhaps, these gifts that they're offering this child, they carry with them great spiritual significance as though... These gifts spoke of this person's identity and spoke of Jesus' coming work. Now, can I just walk you through that for a second? Think about the frankincense. Isn't that an odd gift to give to a kid? I don't know what Edward and Marika are giving Dward for Christmas, but I doubt it's incense sticks or something akin to that, is it? Does it seem strange? But you think about it biblically for a moment. Come on, what do we know? We know all the way from the beginning of the Bible, from the Pentateuch, all the way through, incense is linked to prayer. Don't we? We've just sang, sung Psalm 141. Let my prayer be counted as incense. Then you get into Revelation 5. The balls of incense, which are, wait for it, the balls of incense which are the very prayers of the saints. Could it be? Could it be that this frankincense is a symbolic offering? After all, who is the child in his mother's arms but the God-man? Who is this but the one who is fit to receive prayer? He is the one who is able to perfect the prayers of his saints. And then you move on. 
You think, what's next? Gold. Gold, that's a much more straightforward one. What is gold but the most precious of metals? A gift that is fit for not just a king, but the one in his mother's arms who is the king of kings. And then we all know from the youngest to the oldest what the third gift is, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A fragrant spice. An expensive spice. But what do you know about myrrh in Scripture? You might say to me, yeah, you know, we we know that it was used of anointing. Anointing the priests. Yes. But isn't it of interest to remember that primarily myrrh was used to prepare a body for burial? Myrrh used to embalm the dead. Isn't it arresting to remember that later on in John's gospel, Jesus Christ's own body will be treated with myrrh in death? Could it be? Could it be that this is a symbolic gift from the Magi? After all, who is the child but the one who has come to die that long-awaited death? Who is the child but the great once and for all sacrifice for sin? Who is the child but the one who after fulfilling all righteousness, living perfectly, shall die for his people's sins? Could it be that these three gifts are symbolic? Well, maybe. Maybe. But I think this is more likely. That Matthew all of a sudden goes into great detail here to show you even this morning that what is happening at this very moment is a fulfillment of one specific Old Testament prophecy. So can I ask you to look at the very foot of your service sheet? Look at the very bottom of the service sheet. I asked Laura to include this. I trust that she will have done so. Do you see Isaiah chapter 60? So this is a prophecy from Isaiah. Okay, and it's a prophecy of a momentous day that's going to come, and it's a day of light, and it's, ah, wait for it, it's a day when Gentile dignitaries will travel to Israel. And you look at verse 6, and you see what is said of this day. A day when multitudes of camels shall arrive, and a day that the riders shall bring with them offerings of gold. And offerings of frankincense. Isn't it amazing? Who is the child in his mother's arms? This is child. Not just deserving of great gifts and expensive presents. This is a child that all of human history revolves around. Who is the child? This is a child spoken of hundreds of years before. A child worthy of your worship. And then we end. We close the last thing, the nature of worship. The nature. Because maybe I, I need to, just to, to end, just very briefly addressing a concern that, that you might have or a, certainly a question that might have, uh, yeah, might have sparked in your mind since even the beginning of the sermon, perhaps. The question, Andy, are you not reading a bit too much into this? You know, after all, um, you know, you're saying that it says the true worship of Jesus Christ, you know, it's a recognition of Jesus' identity, bowing before him in worship. But is that really what's going on? I mean, are they not just acting in a way that you would act in the first century world if you're before a dignitary or a king-like figure? 
You know, in the way that you might act if you see a monarch today, there would be reverence and we might not fall to the ground in adoration. But, you know, they're not just showing some respect, deference to a sort of kingly figure, a dignitary. Well, let me just give you a, a, one or two reasons why I do not think that is so, and I think this is true worship of Jesus Christ. First, you know as well as I do that acting like this, bowing before men in the Bible, that is frowned upon, to say the least, by God, isn't it? You know that, I know that. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ accepts that sort of worship. Others, though, what do we learn from Paul and Barnabas? They rip their clothes off in disgust when others treat them in this way. Why? Because such adulation, such worship, such praise must be reserved for God and God alone. Then consider this. If this is, as you're thinking this, you're thinking, if this is just how the wise men behave with dignitaries, this is just showing some deference and respect. My question back to you would be, why do they not do it with Herod? He's a king, isn't he? He's supposedly worthy of respect and honor, but there's not even a hint of the fact that the wise men fall prostrate before Herod and, and worship him. But if you're not yet convinced, consider this, that this idea of people falling before Jesus Christ in true heartfelt devotion, faith, and praise, consider that that is an often overlooked theme in Matthew's gospel. This idea of falling before Jesus Christ, recognizing who he is, worshiping him, It's not found very often in Mark's gospel. Twice, I think, in Luke's gospel, Matthew goes to town. He's full of it. Thirteen different times in Matthew's gospel, Matthew traces people falling before Jesus in recognition and then worship. You think about it with me. From the very leper who was cleansed, to the synagogue ruler, to the disciples in the boat, to the women at the tomb, and I'm suggesting to you, beginning here with the wise men with the magi. Time and again, Matthew shows you people being given insight by God into the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ and these people being overcome, these people falling to the very ground before Jesus Christ, recognizing who he is, at least something of who he is and responding with devotion, with faith, with praise. Responding not just in wonder, but responding in worship to the King of Kings. And I reckon because of that, the application for you this morning should be abundantly clear. Is it not clear, especially if you're a Christian? We've all heard from Boris, haven't we? We've all heard and realized that this Christmas is going to be entirely different to everything else we've experienced, isn't it? And for nearly everyone in this room and the people listening on, it means it's going to be a quieter Christmas. It means less is going to be going on at Christmas. We are going to have more time at Christmas. Do you not see what we ought to do? Yes, we ought to bring to Jesus Christ like these wise men and present our gifts to Christ. Don't you agree? Don't you agree this is a time where you and I have to think, are we actually presenting our best to Jesus? 
Isn't this a time where we think, am I giving to Christ my, all of my energy, the best of my time, my abilities, my gifts? Am I presenting these to Jesus? It's a time for considering that. But surely as Christians, we need to do more. You're going to be alone. You're going to be quiet at Christmas. Should we not simply present ourselves to our Lord, to do as the, and the wise men did, and to fall simply in worship and adoration of Jesus Christ. We must make time for that, Christian friend. There's application for the Christian. But maybe, maybe there's also a word here for those who do not believe. Is that you? I wonder, Christian friend, what do you think God demands, or non-Christian friend, what do you think God demands of you for reconciliation. This Christmas, for you to be right with God, what does God demand? What would you say? Do you think it is simply to nod to Jesus at this time of year, to attend a service? Do you think it is simply to be supportive of the church, to get to know a few more Christian people? Is that what God demands? No. God demands from you the same as from the wise men, the Magi. So if you're not a Christian, you see what you need to do this Christmas time. Drawn by God, you need to go to Jesus. Drawn by God, you need to enter that house. And you need to behold the one who is the King of Kings. You need to understand that He alone is the Savior of sinners. He alone the way, the truth, and the life. And this Christmas... You need to do as they did. You need to fall before Jesus Christ in worship. You need to fall before him in repentance and faith. And if you do that, amazing as it sounds of Christmas after the year that we've had, but if you do that, you will know the joy inexpressible that these magi knew. You will know joy upon joy upon joy, the real joy, the true joy of like the magi encountering the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let us bow our heads and let us pray. Lord, our heavenly God, we pray to you. We thank you that you frame our Lord's life with dramatic instances of faith and worship. We see that at the cross with a penitent thief, although from an earthly perspective, he only sees one crucified man beside him, yet he trusts and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. No miracles, no wonders, merely a crucified man. And then you begin our Lord's life with these magi. No wonders from this child, nothing of his person to evoke such wonder. And yet you illumine their minds, their hearts, that this is the one deserving of praise. Lord God, your ways are mysterious. We know they are saving ways. So we ask, Lord God, that this Christmas and even at this service, you might use these words in Matthew's gospel to bring people to Jesus.
to make them fall before the one who is deserving of all worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.